0: Our story opens under a grey Mancunian sky
1: Are you alright? You look like Christmas has been cancelled Because it
0: is
2: Sorry, that was dramatic, but I'm behind on my literature review I need to find some case studies, give it some wider context and show that I'm properly read if I can't wrap it up soon, I'll have to stay and work over the holidays.
1: That sounds rough. What have I happened to work-life balance?
3: Exactly. Didn't your supervisor listen to anything Gandalf said last year?
2: I'm not sure.
1: Well, is there anything we can do to help?
2: You have helped. You've heard me out.
0: That evening, alone in the office, our hero pays a visit to a land of sweetness and wonder snack club. But, as they closed the money drawer...
2: What's that?
0: Lying at the bottom was an unmarked external hard drive.
2: I could have sworn that wasn't there earlier.
0: Normally, it would be a bad idea to just plug in a strange hard drive and see what might be on it.
2: But at this point,
0: uh, what's the worst that could happen? And as the smoke cleared, a figure became visible on the floor.
4: Ow!
2: Are you okay? And if you don't mind me asking, how did you get here? Why are you, why are you pointing to the drive?
4: Are you trying to say you were stuck in that thing? Yes, and it was jolly uncomfortable too. But you have released me. So, who are you? I appear to those in bother... Or have lost their way, for I am the Flaery Godmother, and I'm here to save the dead. Huh,
2: like in Aladdin, where the genie was trapped in the lamp.
4: Quite like that, yes. Although those particular circumstances wouldn't fit this particular tale. But you do seem troubled. Were you seeking guidance from an expert on flare stars, by any chance? I guess I am.
2: I'm putting together my literature review on variable stars and dwarf novae. I'm running out of time. I'm meant to be travelling back home for Christmas soon. But if I can't get on top of this, then...
4: It does sound like you could use a helping hand. Just picture yourself by a warm fire and I shall grant you your heart's desire. As long as what you desire is pictures of stars which vary on human timescales. I can't really do much beyond that. So you can actually help? By granting a wish? Of course. The clues in the name.
2: Alright! I wish
4: for seven Dwarf (laughs) Novae.
2: Nothing's happening? Did it not work?
4: Although it is the season, that's not my gift to give. It is though for a reason, to protect the narrative. What I'm saying is, is that I can't magic up a thesis for you. And even if I could, it wouldn't represent an original contribution to human knowledge. But if you need variable stars, I can help you look. Like a quest? I guess I can get behind that. Then worry not, just stick with me, and you won't go too far wrong. We'll find those stars and you'll be free to get where you belong.
5: Hang on, hang on a minute. We've done this one already. Neil White and the Seven Dwarf Planets.
4: Technically, we have.
2: But this was always going to happen at some point. If we made it this far.
6: Hmm.
5: I suppose you're right. Still. Wouldn't have happened in my
6: day.
4: How many
2: do you have so far? I've got three case studies at the moment.
4: Mm. Let's see. Oh, that one's that one's my favourite. It was in my own thesis back in the day. Or, at least I think it was. For some reason, I can't quite remember.
2: Maybe being stuck on that external hard drive will do that to you. And, well, you end up in that thing, anyway.
0: Meanwhile, in another office across the road...
6: Gaia, Gaia, on the wall, who's the brightest of them all?
7: You are mighty postdoc. As I expected.
2: So, you're telling me that someone trapped you on that disc?
4: You know how bizarre that sounds, right? And yet, here I am.
2: Who would do such a thing?
4: I have a hunch, but no proof. If I could find my friends, they might have some ideas. I'm worried they're trapped somewhere as well. Well, there are a bunch
2: of other hard drives in this building. If we're lucky, whoever did this got lazy and stored you all together.
0: Some time later...
6: Gaia! Gaia! On the wall! Who's the brightest of them all?
0: But this time, Gaia did not respond.
6: Well... Aren't you going to tell me that I am the most talented and successful variable star astronomer in all the land?
4: There is another. What? How?
6: Show me them at once. I see one new face and one old. You've done well to bring this to my attention. They shall be stopped.
4: Do you not wish for a new colleague in the future?
6: Certainly not. If they're allowed to succeed... I might have to cite their papers, not the other way round. I won't have it.
4: This seems like an abuse of power, and of a flagship space mission.
6: Silence! What is the point in progressing up the ladder if you don't use that position to kick out the rivals underneath you? <laughs> and I know just how to do it. A spot of false data should lead their impressionable hero down a dark alley. Oh, oh, oh no. no, it won't. Oh, yes, it will. Oh, oh now it, it won't Oh yes it will I just have to make it look convincing <laughs> and for Simbad a publication in Prep. They shouldn't realize they've been had. Now the trap is set. <laughs> 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 <laughs>
2: bunch of archival data that I can look at. But nothing that looks like a missing person's case. Any lucker?
0: Our hero turns around to see the flary godmother standing over two more discs with a face like thunder.
4: Should I be concerned at this point? You might want to hide under your desk. What's the magic word? Desk?
2: Is it safe to come out yet?
5: All right,
1: all. Heyo,
2: hey strong. strong I'll take that as a yes.
1: Hello, love. I gather you helped us get out of those awful machines. Well,
2: I helped a bit, I guess.
1: Sorry, who are you? Ah, my name, this year, is Dame Cynthia Cataclysmic.
2: So, what do you do?
1: What do I do? I'm an expert on cataclysmic variables, I'll have you know. They used to be out of fashion around here, but I'm bringing them back.
5: That's why she's dressed like she's from the 70s.
1: Fun of these days, Angström.
0: With the team reassembled, our postgraduate sets about tracking down variable sources under the watchful eye of their flary godmother.
1: I found something here. It's a new one, but it has been published. They've called it... MKTJ170456.2 minus 482100.
5: Uh, That's a mouthful. You'd have thought they'd have picked up catching your name. Is it a variable source? Yes. Do they say why?
1: No.
2: That sounds perfect. Oh, my supervisor's emailed me. It's 7pm. Tell them to stop working. Uh, They sent me another source to check out. This is actually looking doable now. Hmm, there's a second attachment here as well. It looks like an audio file of some kind.
8: Hello and welcome to a very special Christmas edition of The Joint Caster with Ian MacDonald, Laura Driesen, Tian Pesaitna, Michael Wright, and Leila Flesheron the Cost December 2019, next So now for the main part of the show, we're joined in the studio by Mike yeah. and a new face in the studio, Layla.
9: Hello, so hello everybody. My name is Leila Blisheva and I am from Mexico. I'm new here today at University of Manchester. I'm starting the PhD working on searching for pulsars and working with band stoppers.
8: Great to have you in the show. In the show this time, Ian McDonald answers your astronomical questions, and we interview Simon Johnston about his work searching for pulsars.
2: But first, before all of that, Tian talks to Laura
8: Dreesen in this month's Jobbite. For this month's Jobbite, I'm joined in the studio by friend of the show, Laura Dreesen. Hey! Uh, who's here to talk about a very
7: exciting discovery uh,
8: that she's been a part of. I'll leave that to you.
7: Sure. Tian and I are both part of the MIRTRAP team, which is more transients and pulsars. Um, but I'm also in another team uh, that works with the Meerkat telescope called Thundercat. Um, and for those of you who haven't heard us talk about it many, many times before, Meerkat is a radio telescope in South Africa, which is 64 radio dishes and that each is about... 14 metres in diameter, and the furthest apart two dishes are is 8 kilometres. So it's a really big and exciting new instrument that's been observing for, what, about a bit more than a year? Um, so the Thundercat team is looking at things in the radio sky that change brightness over time, or sometimes we see them in the radio or sometimes we don't. So what we've been doing is looking at this one object called GX339-4, um, which it looks like it's just a dot in the right. middle of the image, yeah. which is, you know, it's still very exciting. Uh, well, I've seen it. It's not impressive. It, no. Know, at the, first glance. But yeah. At well, first glance, yeah. it just looks like a dot in the middle. Yeah. But um, it's a really interesting source, so interesting that Thundercat has said they're going to observe it every week for five years, yeah. which is great, especially for me, because I'm interested in sources, other sources, that we don't know about yet. That also change brightness or sort of appear and disappear in the radio. So GX3 through 9 is a dot in the middle. And then there actually is over 600 other sources in the field. So that means that we get 600 bonus sources every week with Meerkat, which means that we can see whether any of these things change over time. Right. So this is really hard in general in radio astronomy because we normally don't come back to the same fields very often and even if we do most people don't check if things have changed they're interested in their one thing which is fine because the one thing is probably really interesting but in december last year antonio rollinson of the university of amsterdam and astron had a look at this field to see if anything changed and something had so that was really exciting yeah. <laughs> and lucky for me i joined the team a week or so before the discovery was made and um I put my name down to look at any stars that did something interesting in the radio. And when Antonia found this source that had suddenly had a, a pretty bright flare in the radio, um, it lined up smack bang on top of a star. So they went, Here go, Laura. Here's a really source.
8: Cool. Know, <laughs> in perpetuity, you'll have your name associated with the first transient.
7: Sure. Is- yeah. Really cool. It is. It's really exciting. And um, I think. For me, in particular, when I started my PhD, because I'm a third-year PhD student here at the University of Manchester, Ben, my supervisor, said, you're also going to look at flare stars. And as a radio astronomer who's looked at pulsars and fast radio bursts and things like that, I sort of went, oh, stars. Yeah. Do stars even do anything interesting? Um, and a lot of radio astronomers sort of have the same attitude. Right. I've been converted. Ben Just was right. Balls of gas, right? Yeah, like exactly. You know? If it's not like a galaxy or a pulsar, no. eh? No,
8: it, it made of exotic matter or
7: anything? <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's just it's just a normal. Well, I'll we'll get into that, but it's just <laughs> yeah, a normal star. This one might be an exotic. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think it's kind of nice as well that so stellar flares, so radio flares in particular from stars or from from binaries or systems that have a star in them aren't really that well studied. They were studied pretty well in the the 90s and earlier, um, but These things are really hard to observe because if we looked with a single dish telescope like the Lovell telescope, as we all are very familiar with the Lovell telescope, these things often just look kind of like noise, like the rubbish that we cut out when we're observing other sources. So it's, you know, usually we don't see these things just because they look like rubbish. So we ditch them in the radio. So the huge advantage of Meerkat, not just that we're looking at the same field multiple times, is that it's an interferometer. So we can say that what would normally look like kind of noise junk that we would see in a single dish, we can be like, oh, look, it's actually something because we can really confirm that when we have all these dishes together.
8: Yeah. So once you spotted the transient in the meerkat images, what was the next step after that?
7: So the, I mean, as radio astronomers, a lot of the time, if we see something just in the radio, it's quite hard to investigate what it is. But in this case, because it was smack bang on top of a star, we confirmed that the positions overlapped. With this star. And that meant that we had a bit of a treasure trove of historical observations because um, optical telescopes uh, have had really excellent all sky surveys for a long time. So since we saw that it was a star, we were sort of like, yes, we can observe with lots of other telescopes. And maybe other people have also looked at this source already just by chance. Um, And it turns out that that's true. So there's a lot of archival observations at different frequencies. Uh, Sorry, I should say it's optical, so it's wavelengths. You can see my radio astronomer is showing (laughs) um, when I say frequency instead of wavelength. Yeah, so we looked back and um, Ian MacDonald here at the University of Manchester, massive shout out. He is the second author on this paper and he really did an amazing job and really helped out. Without him, we definitely wouldn't have half the information that we have. So what he did, we had something called the spectral energy distribution. And this is where you take a measurement of the brightness of a star at different wavelengths. So we had from UV up to infrared, including some optical points as well. And what he did was he took those points and used his code. He'd written, I think maybe in his PhD or maybe a little bit after his PhD in one of his postdocs, um, and fit that with a model of what you would expect to see from a few different types of stars. And it turns out that the best fit is something called a K-type subgiant. So that just means it's a little bit older than the sun. It's evolved past, the sun is in the main sequence, it's evolved past that. It's pretty big, as the name giant suggests, and it's about two times the mass of the sun, two and a half times the mass of the sun. So that was a little bit unusual at first. So this is all using just archival observations that people have already taken before. And that was a little bit unusual because a normal flare star, a star that's just on its own and does some interesting radio flaring things and optical flaring things actually, is normally an M-type dwarf. But instead here we have a K-type subgiant that was a bit of a surprise and threw us for a bit of a loop. After that, we also found about 18 years of relatively frequent optical observations of this source. So over 18 years, the ASAS uh, Survey, Kelt Survey, and Assassin Survey um, have been observing this source pretty much every night when it's a nighttime source, because unlike radio astronomy, optical astronomers can only observe their sources when they're up at nighttime. But it did mean that we had this sort of treasure trove of archival observations and we could then use that to find out more about the star itself
8: so what uh, did you see in the optical observations
7: (laughs) so we found out that this star actually changes brightness over 21 days so over a period of 21 days it becomes brighter and then fainter and that happens pretty much every 21 days that we saw but the shape of this sort of getting brighter and fainter changed pretty regularly and that's a bit unusual because If, say, for example, this change in brightness was due to, I don't know, the star being in a binary or something like that, we wouldn't expect the shape of that variability to change. We'd expect it to just sort of stay the same. It's quite tricky to change that if it's caused by an orbit. Um, But what we think now is that this is probably caused by uh, star spots. So just like the sun has spots on it, we think that this star has spots on it too. Um, but that these spots are probably much, much bigger than the ones Mm. that are on the sun, because the ones on the sun look like little dots pretty much, but these ones will be covering a huge chunk of the surface of the star. Um, So we found that out. Um, And once we found out that this star was not only causing these radio flares, but uh, it was interesting in its own right as well, then we went out and started finding our own observations at different frequencies. For example, we asked the SWIFT telescope, which is a satellite that can observe X-rays and UV. And we asked that telescope to have a look for us, and they did, which is very nice. And we found that it is detected in the X-ray and in the UV. The UV wasn't too surprising because that could just be coming from the star itself, but the X-ray, we only got about 18 photons in Mm. a 1,000 seconds. So that's 18 little specks of light isn't very much, but it still was interesting to know that it has X-ray because most stars, we don't see them in the X-ray at all. And after that, David Buckley in South Africa at the South African Astronomical Observatory took some observations uh, with the SALT telescope, which are actually something we call spectra. And this is where we take the light from the star and split it up into all the different wavelengths. And using that, we can see what we call lines, absorption lines from different chemical elements from the star. And we can find a lot of information about that, more information on the type of star, but it actually just looked like a sort of -of run-of-the-mill K-type subgiant, like we expected, Um, We found out using those lines that the star itself is what we call chromospherically active, and that just means that it has some magnetic field. So, again, kind of like the sun, but a bit more intense and stronger. And we also found out that the star is in a binary. So unlike what previous optical surveys had thought, it's not a star just by itself. It's in a binary, and that was really interesting because that might tell us – well hopefully eventually, but not right at this yeah. point, <laughs> might tell us where the radio is coming from. Because like I said, it's not that common for stars to flare or even be visible in the radio. Normally, when we look with a telescope like Meerkat, most of the things we see are galaxies, not individual stars. They're normally just so faint in the radio that we don't see them at all.
8: Yeah, so what can you say about the companion, if anything?
7: <laughs> so at the moment, not that much. Yeah. So in the, from these spectral observations that we took with the SALT telescope, we can see that... The orbit of this binary is the 21 days that we saw with the other optical observations. That wasn't too surprising. And we found out that its companion, it's a little bit uncertain. So some of this is sort of speculation, but scientific speculation. I shouldn't say we're just making things up, that's for sure. But from the information that we know, we can see that this companion is about one and a half times the mass of the sun or more. So that's sort of the minimum mass that it could be, but we can't see it. So we can't actually see, except for a tiny, tiny hint in the spectra, we can't actually see any evidence of this star. We can just see the K giant star.
8: Right. So if it were heavier, you would expect it to be seen in the, in the spectra? Of the-
7: yeah, absolutely. And also just in our other observations, in yeah. the, the normal optical, all those 18 years of observations and, and the um, previous historical optical observations, we would expect to sort of have a hint that maybe there's a partner in crime to this giant star. But at the moment, all we can see is the giant star. And if we had a star that was about one and a half times the mass of the sun, we would see it. We would see it in the spectra, and we would see hints of it in the other observations that we have. So that sort of rules out that it's just a normal, I guess like a a star like the sun. As far as we can tell, it can't be a star like the sun because we can't see it. Uh, So that leaves us with a few options, mainly compact Objects. So, we've heard a bit about on the Jodcast. I know we hear a lot about neutron stars and pulsars because they're a bit of a staple here and at, at, at Jodrell Bank. Uh, so, it could be a neutron star or it could be a black hole or it could be a white dwarf. So, those were sort of our options. The problem is, white dwarfs, which are cold, dead stars, uh, they can't be just by physics rules, they can't be any heavier than 1.6 times the mass of the sun because once they get heavier than that, they collapse under their own pressure. Yeah. So that sort of rules that one out. And unless the the sort of uncertain measurements that we have are completely off, which I don't think they're completely off, they can't be one of those, which is a bit unusual because a lot of binaries are a white dwarf with another star that's just not yet a white dwarf. Usually it's a white dwarf with a star that will eventually become another white dwarf. So it's a bit weird that it's a giant with either a neutron star or a black hole, as far as we can tell.
8: Yeah, so the constraints that you have on the mass of the companion, do they fall, like, encompassing neutron stars and poss- possibly black holes as well?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's probably getting close to the edge of what could be a neutron star yeah. as well, to be totally honest. Um, I don't want to come out and say that it's a black hole, because that would be a big call. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but just speculatively, it could be yeah, yes. a black hole. Possibly. Yes, exactly, because neutron stars as far as we can as far as we know now get up to about 2 times the mass of the sun. Um, so once we get a bit more than that then there's pretty much only one option yeah. left just because we can't see it. So it has to be something quote unquote invisible. <laughs> um and quite heavy. So that makes it a bit tricky to fit things into that model. So it's pretty unusual and especially because we see radio flares from it. So that's the the kind of real, yeah. what is this that we're seeing? A star system that has radio flares. It's not unheard of, but in this particular one, it's just a bit
8: odd. Right. So what would be the next step in kind of trying to tie down what exactly this is?
7: So what we would really love, and we've asked for some XMM-Newton observations. Now, XMM-Newton is another space telescope, and this one is X-ray. So we've already talked about how we detected this the source in the X-ray with SWIFT. Um, And Swift is a really excellent instrument, but this source is pretty far away. It's about 1,800 light years away or about 550 parsecs. So we need a really sensitive X-ray telescope and XMM is more sensitive than Swift. So in that 1,000 seconds with Swift, we get only 18 photons. We'd expect to get many, many more with XMM-Newton instead. And what we'd really like is to see if the X-rays are changing because at the moment with Swift, we just can't tell because it's so few photons, we can't tell if anything's changing in the X ray. And also, we can get something called an X ray spectrum. So, we can actually see what kind of X rays we're getting. So, that could give us a hint about exactly where this X ray brightness is coming from. Because at the moment, all we can say is that the X rays are coming from the system. We can't say if it's coming from the subgiant or if it's coming from this unknown companion.
8: Okay. If the companion were a compact object, would we expect the X rays to be coming from there?
7: It's possible. So it depends if there's a, if there's an accretion disk yeah. or not. So that that would be really what we would be looking for an accretion disk. Um, but it also would it would be fine if the X rays were all coming from the giant star because there's a type of star that's called an RS Canum Venaticorum, which is a bit of a mouthful, but it's named after the first t- star of its kind, which was named RS Canum Venaticorum. We call them RSCVNs because it's much less of a mouthful. And those stars can be by themselves X-ray luminous. uh, So that wouldn't be unheard of. But it's really, if we get more photons, then we can get a spectrum and that tells us what sort of X-rays they are. So that would really kind of tell us where they're coming from, whether they're coming from the star or from the companion. Uh, And we'd also really love a UV spectrum as well. So a spectrum, it's all about the spectra, uh, a spectrum in the ultraviolet. But the only place you can get one of those is from Hubble. So XMM, Newton, we're already – it's quite tricky to get observations yeah. from that because we think this is really cool, but there might be 20 other people who have also proposed for something equally cool that are fighting for the exact same time on the telescope. So it's really tricky to get yeah. time on Good these like telescopes.
8: getting
7: Hubble time. Uh, yeah, exactly. So compared to XMM, Hubble is just crazy. So many people, and as they should because it's a really ex- excellent instrument – so we will ask for time on that and see how we go. But a UV spectrum, if, this, if the companion is a white dwarf or something like that, it would be really obvious in the UV spectrum. Um, and if we got some extra lines, so these chemical elements, these lines would really give us a hint about whether any of the light that we see is coming from the companion. Uh, and then if it is a white dwarf, then that's interesting because we have to explain why it's at least 1.5 solar masses because that's quite on the edge of where a white dwarf can be. Yeah,
8: I guess with Meerkat as well, there's another couple of years of weekly observation.
7: Yes, this is for me, this is possibly the most exciting. I guess it might still give us really big clues to what's going on here because we have four more years of observations with Meerkat. They've already been observing it for just over a year now. So we have four more years of weekly observations with Meerkat, plus the assassin optical survey. Every night it's looking in pretty much every star in the southern hemisphere including this star. So we have both radio and optical observations. So that could really give us some hints, because if, for example, we see a flare in the radio and correspondingly something happens to the optical, or even if we see something interesting happening in the radio and nothing happens in the optical, that could tell us some hints about what's going on too. And Mierlicht as well? So we would love to have Mierlicht, but unfortunately the star is too bright. so uh, the star is what we call 11th magnitude, and that is actually uh, – its magnitudes are weird, uh, but it's too it's really bright. bright. Yeah, it's it's really, really bright. I think it's the – it might even be the brightest optical source in that field, uh, and Meerlicht is, I guess, a bit too sensitive. It's so good that this star just overexposes and becomes kind of a bit of a weird blob that you can't really measure accurately
8: guess we should mention that uh, Meerlicht is the optical telescope that will be shadowing a Meerkat radio telescope. So the idea is to give you simultaneous op- uh, radio and optical observations.
7: Which is really exciting. It's going to yeah. be it's awesome. But in this particular case, our star is just a little bit <laughs> too intense. <laughs>
8: right. But uh, no, if it does turn out to be like some more uh, exotic system that we haven't seen before. It would be really cool to have it be observed like so with such a high cadence, right?
7: Yeah, absolutely. So So this is especially uh, advantageous because like I said, uh, flares from stellar systems and from stars are pretty tricky to observe. And also it's hard to say to a telescope, can you please point at this source for 10 hours and maybe we'll see something, maybe we won't. But because this source, we're just getting the observations of it anyway because it happens to be in the same images that we're taking of this other gx339-4 source so we're getting a bonus five years so it'll probably be don't quote me on this but it'll probably be the longest uh, monitoring of any stellar flare system ever it probably already is actually because you just don't get people looking at stars in the radio when we have you know neutron stars and black hole binaries and galaxies and jets and all these other things. Um, so ho- hopefully this source will be a bit of a comeback for stellar flares. And also I think it's just kind of the tip of an, a really big iceberg of transients that Meerkat is going to find just because – not not because the other instruments aren't any good, they're all excellent, but just for the nature of the observations that Thundercat are doing, they're going back to the same fields over and over again. So we're getting longer data sets of multiple times – where we have lots of bonus sources. Yeah. So Meerkat's really going to bring the radio astronomers more up to date with the transients, hopefully. yeah. In the,
8: in the GX339 field, are there any other sources that you're looking at or interested? In?
7: Yes, there are definitely other sources I'm looking at. I can't tell you about them. Well, super secret. <laughs> no, they're not super secret, but um, there are other sources in the field that could be doing some interesting things. At the moment, we're trying to just make sure that all of the measurements that we're getting are hundred yep. percent on point. Cause it's really tricky. In optical and X ray and things like that, you can sort of think about it like taking a photo with your camera. But in the radio it's completely different. We have to take a huge amount of steps in processing and calibrating and making everything sure everything is the right flux density or brightness that we have to really be careful that we're doing everything exactly right. This source we double triple checked and that, yep. all that sort of thing. But the other sources, because it's such a big field of view that we're looking at with this telescope, we really need to make sure that we've got everything really accurate across all the sources mm. so we're still checking that but we do there are some sources that we're keeping an eye on that we think will be interesting as well whether they line up with stars or not or they're galaxies or something else entirely we'll see well another
8: four years we'll <laughs> have you back on <laughs> yes
7: well comparison. hopefully there might be some more coming up next year as well oh. because even with a year of observations that's a huge yeah. uh, set of measurements for point sources. So hopefully you'll be hearing some new things soon. All right.
8: We should uh, mention that Laura also wrote an article for The Conversation for a general science audience. So we'll put a link to that one in the show notes.
7: Yep. And we'll put a link to the journal article as well. So if you want to have a look at it, um, please do. (laughs) It's a lot of different observations with lots of different telescopes. So it's a really nice. Example of the combination that you can, so the information that you can get from combining a whole load of telescopes, and a lot of them were in South Africa as well, which is really exciting to use all these new telescopes and yeah. things that are popping up in in South Africa. So that's a really nice yeah. extra part.
8: Anytime you can look at a MeerKat image is just a great yes. opportunity. <laughs> yes, they're beautiful. Yeah. Well, uh, thanks for that, Laura. Thanks, uh, Tian. Yeah, hope to see you
7: very soon. Definitely. See you later. All right. Cheers. So,
9: thanks for that, Tian. Now, Mike interviews Simon Johnston about searching for pulsars.
10: Hello. Um, Firstly, please introduce yourself. Yes, good morning. I'm Simon Johnston. I'm from the CSIRO in Sydney, Australia. Okay, wonderful. And you came here this week to give us a talk about pulsars? Well, maybe I could tell you a bit about where I started off uh, as as an astronomer.
2: Yes. Because, in
10: fact, I did my PhD here at Jodrell Bank. Uh, way back, starting in 1987. Um, And when I was there, I met Andrew Lyon, who was even then a distinguished professor. And he offered me this great uh, PhD in pulsar astronomy. And I thought, this sounds fantastic. And since then, I've been doing pulsars ever since. So what particular aspect of that have you been working on recently then? So recently I've been trying to understand how they work, how pulsars actually work. So a lot of people use pulsars as tools. For example, pulsars are very great clocks, because they they tick on a regular basis once per rotation of the pulsar, and you can use the pulsars as a clock to do lots of very interesting experiments. But the problem is the clock is not exactly perfect, and I'm trying to understand what is it about pulsars that makes the clock not very perfect. And that was the subject of my talk this week. Very good. So what were a few of the things you pointed out then that made the pulsar not perfect? So the textbook picture of a pulsar... Um, if you want to think of it this way it's just you have a bar magnet and it's rotating in a vacuum. That's the simplest picture. And under that picture you can understand how it should get slower and you should understand how it spins. But the reality of course is that a pulsar is not a bar magnet. It's got all sorts of weird things associated with it. In particular it's got a big magnetosphere. That magnetosphere can be filled with plasma and that plasma has an effect on the rotation of the star. In addition, the star is not really a perfect sphere. It can deviate from a sphere, so it has some ellipticity, and that ellipticity can change with time, and that affects the rotation of the star. And then finally, the you can think of the pulsar in some ways a bit like an egg. It has a very thin crust of material, and then the inside of a pulsar is generally thought to be a superconducting uh, liquid. So it's a bit like an egg in that sense, in that you've got a crust and a liquid interior, and the liquid is not perfectly coupled to the to the shell. And so that decoupling between the shell and the liquid interior also causes irregularities in the spin. Okay, so then the next question I suppose is how do
2: these irregularities show themselves? What do you see?
10: So instead of seeing a regular tick of the pulse, sometimes the pulse arrives a little bit early. Sometimes it arrives a little bit late. And sometimes there's a big discontinuity in when it arrives. And you can think of those a little bit like earthquakes. There's a sudden violent thing that affects the surface of the star, and that affects the spin rate. And suddenly, the pulsar starts spinning at a, at a faster rate than it was doing before the glitch. Okay, your job then is to find out why these things are happening. So not only why they're happening, but what's the size of them? Um, do they occur in all pulsars the same? And in fact, we found that it's different in young pulsars. Young pulsars have much more activity. They glitch much more often. and are much more irregular than the very old pulsars. And that's probably something to do with their internal temperature. So that's another thing I'm looking at, is how much the irregularity is affected by age, for example. Okay, so what have you been finding out so far then? So this, this has implications for... The detection of gravitational waves with pulsar timing, which is one of the, the big projects in pulsar astronomy. So there, what we're looking for is uh, we're looking for supermassive black holes in orbit about each other, and that can affect the timing of the pulsar. But that kind of affects the timing of the pulsar in sort of the same way as these irregularities can affect it. So what you want to do is try and understand the irregularities so you can find this gravitational wave emission. Okay, so you don't want to mistake gravitational waves or
2: what is an irregularity. That's exactly right. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Can you just talk then a little bit more about how you've been trying to do this, how you've been
10: working. So I've course? been I um I'm in uh, in Australia and I mainly use the Parkes radio telescope, which is a sixty-four meter diameter radio telescope about three hundred and fifty kilometers west of Sydney. Uh, so that's the main instrument that I use. And I've been monitoring a group of about 200 pulsars over the last 10 years to see what they're doing. And this is all different types of pulsars, both young pulsars and old pulsars, just to get a big sample to see if I can tell the difference between you know, the various subsets. So I monitor these uh, on a regular basis, and then, of course, I set my grad students to work in analyzing the data and coming up with the latest results. Good stuff. So...
2: On a slightly side note to that then, how do you know that which ones are the young ones and which ones are the old
10: ones? So the young ones <coughs> are generally faster rotating. <coughs> we know the crab pulsar, which is the youngest pulsar we know, 950 years old, um, and it rotates 33 times per second. So it's a very fast one. And uh, So generally the spin period tells you a little bit about how old they are, but also the faster they slow down, the younger they also are. So it's a combination of their spin rate and the slowdown rate that tells you the age. So one of the the things we are looking at is, of course, we can only observe over a time span of 10 years or so. So we can see how pulsars are irregular over that space of 10 years. But what we really want to know is, what are they doing on a timescale of a million years, which is kind of the lifetime of the stars? Now, of course, we can never observe one single pulsar directly, all the way from birth to death. But of course, the beauty of astronomy is that you've got typically a lot of objects, and so you see them in all stages of their evolution. So you can see young ones and old ones, and then you can and middle-aged ones, and then you've got to try and figure out how they get from young to middle aged to old in their spin in their spin. Uh, so I remember you showed the picture of you growing up
6: to demonstrate that.
10: Yes, yeah, so that's exactly right. I mean, if you think about a human lifespan. And if you were a sociologist you could take a baby at birth and you know watch that baby growing up to middle age and old age so you could do that with a single object but you know in astronomy this takes forever so it's like looking at a crowd of people for example and trying to determine if there was say a relationship between the age of a person and the height of a person just by looking at big crowds of people and getting big numbers to to help you do this okay and so has that been rather successful then Yes, I mean, our sample, of course, is, you know, it's only 100-and-something pulsars. It's not really a huge sample. But, of course, you don't have an infinite amount of observing time. There's only so much observing you can do. There's only so much your student can put up with when it comes to (laughs) data processing and data reduction. So you you kind of do what you can, and then from that sample of 100, you try and infer something about the population as a whole. Okay, and are you looking to get a larger sample in the future, then? Well, we are. So the Meerkat Telescope, which is... Uh, which is now open for business in South Africa and doing a lot of interesting observing. Our plan there is to observe a thousand pulsars on a regular basis with that telescope because that telescope has a lot of sensitivity and should enable us to do that. And if you have these very large samples, not only can you figure out what's going on, but in a large sample you always have a couple of very weird objects that are doing strange things and they're interesting to look at in their own right. Okay. Okay. So have you found any sort of strange, interesting objects
2: in your own sample as well? Because in 100, you might find something odd.
10: Yes, well, there is, there is one that seems to be a little bit odd. It's behaving in a slightly strange way. And if you kind of work out the numbers, it's, it's, it's kind of consistent with having a, a companion, which is about the mass of the sun, but which takes about 100 years to orbit the pulsar. And so this is quite unusual because generally you don't see these very wide orbits. It's very difficult to see. If you only observe for a year, it's hard to see. A, it's hard to detect a 100-year orbit. But we think we might be seeing this, and so that's definitely worth following up and seeing if that's real or not. Yes, so you said you're a PhD student here. So mm-hmm. can you just give us the brief and sort of when and what you did first? So I, I, I started back here in uh, 1987 was the year I started my PhD, and at that time, of course, the Turing building wasn't here, and all the Jodrell Bank students actually lived out at Jodrell Bank on the site. They didn't live in, in Manchester in the town. So that, of course, was a very interesting experience. We had a, we had a very large house, almost under the telescope, which had uh, 10 PhD students in there. It was, it was a bit like Big Brother before its time. Uh, it was a very interesting experience to, to live there with 10 other students. And Jodrell Bank has a beautiful arboretum, uh, next to the telescope, and in fact, we could walk through the arboretum into work in the mornings and walk back in the evenings. Generally in our welly boots because the weather's because ah, yes. it was always raining and muddy. But that was that was also an interesting experience. So uh, I started there, and then about a year after I started, I was offered a PhD by Andrew Line. Uh, part of the reason I took that PhD, in fact, was. Um, because he also said I could go to go and visit Australia, which at that time seemed like an exotic location to me to go there. (laughs) So I presume that had the better weather then. (laughs) It definitely had the better weather. In fact, I was so hooked um, on Australia that I went, as soon as I finished my PhD here in 1991, I went to Sydney on a postdoc, which at that time was for only 18 months, and I've been there ever since. Wow. But, you know, my experience at Geodoroa, I... I really enjoyed my PhD here. One of the reasons was because you got to sort of live and work right under the radio telescope. So you could always see it moving, you could always see it doing things. It seemed to be a very exciting um, part of radio astronomy was to actually live at a working observatory and see how it operated. I suppose that's continued since you're now working with parks. Yeah, well, that's right. When I, I mean, when I went to Australia as part of my PhD... Um, at parks, the, the set setup is slightly different. At Jodrell Bank, you have operators who do the ob- observations for you from their control room. At the Parks telescope, the observer is actually in charge of everything, driving the telescope, doing the observing, collecting the data. So, you know, as a young PhD student, to me, it was sort of miraculous that I was put in charge of this massive beast of engineering, and I was allowed to drive it around the sky and point it at my favorite object. That was that definitely really turned me on to astronomy as a career, I would say. Yeah, that, that's wonderful. As you say, at Jodrell Bank, they use someone whose job it is to
2: sort
10: of work the telescope for you. So there you had to understand, especially back in those days where there was a lot of analog patching to be done for the down conversion. So on. you were constantly plugging things in and plugging things out, so you certainly learnt a lot about how telescopes worked and how the whole signal chain worked, just due to the fact that you were there and you had to do it. And even as a student, your supervisor would go off to bed and say, it's all yours, all night. Let's deal with that. <laughs> oh, wonderful. So that was a great learning experience.
2: Wonderful. And what, was your sort of, what were the results you got at the end of
10: that then? So my PhD was actually a survey for pulsars using the Parkes telescope. So we were looking for pulsars. At that time, there was only several hundred pulsars known. This was only you know, 20 years after the discovery. Um, and it was understood that the youngest pulsars lived right in the galactic plane, and so that you had to go up to high frequencies in order to find them. So we did the first high-frequency survey using the Parkes Telescope. That was, that was my PhD. And we found 47 pulsars, something like that, including very young ones that later turned out to be gamma-ray emitters, which is a whole other part of the research I do, actually following on from that. And so doing the survey was great, because you, you got to survey the sky... You got to look at the data, and you got to find a new pulsar for the first time. What could be better than that when you're a young student? So you, you mentioned briefly ones that were gamma-ray emitters. So it turns out that the very youngest pulsars that emit in the radio also emit in gamma-ray. And at that time, uh, there was a gamma-ray satellite that had just been launched. And it, it detected six pulsars, and four of those were actually pulsars that I found as part of my PhD. And partly on the basis of that, uh, funding was obtained for a new gamma-ray telescope that was then launched in 2007, the the, the Fermi satellite. And it's since discovered more than 200 pulsars, something like 250 pulsars in the gamma rays. But part of that's due to the links with the radio observatories, including Geodra Bank, the Effelsberg Telescope in Germany, and Parkes Telescope in Australia, in order for us to provide them with radio data so they can find the pulsars in the gamma rays. So there's a kind of continuity there. Yes, yeah, so you're working together with them. Yes, that's, that's right. Yeah. yeah. Thank
2: you very much. Then that was I mean, that was an interesting talk. Was there any sort of last
10: comments about sort of what you're doing now that you'd like to make? Well, I always enjoy coming back to Manchester. Very I try great. and visit on a sort of a yearly basis. I'm I'm working with both the lecturers here and some of the students, which is which is always great. So it's always okay. good to be back.
2: Oh, wonderful! Thank you. Thank okay, you very very much. So much. Thank you. Thank
10: you. Thank you for coming on here.
2: Thanks for that, Mike. And now, after that, Tian is going to be talking to Ian McDonald in
8: our Ask an Astronomer section. Welcome to this month's Ask an Astronomer segment. I'm joined in the studio by Ian McDonald, who is going to be answering some questions asked of us during the Blue Dot Music Festival. Uh, let's get started. Fern Betty asks, how did planets form?
3: Well, these are some of the questions we got asked by some of the younger attendees, They're some of the most basic questions we can ask in astronomy, and they're questions that we've been wondering about since we first understood what stars and planets actually are. Yet it's only in the last 50 years or so that we've really understood how these processes work, and we're still trying to understand a lot of this fundamental physics today. It's only in the last 20 years or so that we've found out why we have the types of stars around us that we do, and the rich diversity of planetary systems that come along with them. The basic principle behind forming stars is that you need to start with a cloud of gas and dust and you need to make it cool and dense enough for it to collapse in on itself through gravity. That cloud might initially be light-years across, but might collapse down to only a handful of stars. Once this collapse happens, dense clumps start to form, and gas particles and dust grains in those clumps will start hitting each other, and that heats the clumps up. If one of these clumps becomes too hot, it'll simply evaporate. But as the clumps collapse, they also drag in the cloud's magnetic field, and this magnetism helps keep the clump together. The dust in the clump helps insulate it from harsh radiation outside, but dust is also good at cooling the cloud, so it helps stop the clump heating up. Now this collapsing cloud isn't smooth, there's turns and twists in it, and there's over densities and under densities, and these collapse down into filamentary structures, dense spaghetti like lines along which material can collapse, and be pulled down into the collapsing clump. The material flowing down these filaments doesn't always come straight down into the clump, and it will start to spiral, and like a figure skater pulling in her arms, that spiral becomes faster and faster, and the clump gets smaller and smaller, and it starts to rotate, and that gives the clump a pole and an equator. Now material coming down to the poles of the forming star comes straight down to the center of the clump. But material coming down to the equator will be rotating. The central petal force will help keep it away from the center. And this means that the clump starts to flatten into a disk shape. So now we have a clump that's collapsing. It's heating up, starting to rotate, and it's starting to flatten into a disk. And its magnetic field keeps getting stronger and stronger. As the clump is getting denser, dust grains and gas molecules start to collide together and grow. And in the center, that part that will become the star, this happens very quickly as the gas and dust starts to form one large solid blob. This becomes the central star. Further out, gas and dust is slower to stick together and starts to settle down to a smooth protoplanetary disk of growing dust grains. The slow gravitational squeeze in the central star starts to generate a lot of heat. And this starts warming the star up and eventually it starts glowing with heat. In its core, the temperature rises from close to absolute zero to thousands and then millions of degrees. And at this point, hydrogen nuclei bang together so hard, they fuse, forming helium and letting out more heat. This is the start of nuclear burning that breathes life into the growing core of the star. The star is born. This nuclear fusion will power the star, keeping it glowing brightly until it dies, many millions or even billions of years later. However, for now, the star is still collapsing and slowly getting hotter. Material close to the star gets trapped by the magnetic field and funneled onto the surface. Meanwhile, radiation from the brightening star starts to evaporate any dust that's close to it. This truncates the disk that's forming around the star, and the disk starts to evaporate and any gas and dust that could form planets is blown away. So a race is on. If the star gets too bright too quickly, the protoplanetary disk will evaporate and no planets will form. If the dust in the disk can stick together fast enough, planets can form, even large planets. The problem with this is that dust is quite fluffy. So it's quite easy to grow small, fluffy dust bunnies. But it's hard to get these bigger than about a metre across without them breaking apart, a bit like a powdery snowball. It's got to be done slowly and gently. But if you can grow something a few metres in diameter, colliding pebbles can embed themselves into its surface, and the pile of rubble can start to grow. Once it approaches a few kilometres across, gravity slowly starts to take over, starts squishing the fluffy dust together into rock. And if it gets to a few tens of kilometres in size, That rock starts melting. Once it reaches about thousand kilometers in size, it can grow big enough to start clearing out its orbit, and maybe form an atmosphere. Planets further from the star have less material to work with, because the protoplanetary disk isn't so dense that far away from the star. But they've got a big advantage. After hydrogen and helium, oxygen is the most abundant element in the universe, and a lot of the gas around the star consists of water vapor. Far from the star, this water vapor can condense into ice and pebbles can grow quickly into large planetary cores, many times the size of the Earth. Beyond this ice line, large bodies can grow while there's still enough gas to accrete into an atmosphere. If a lot of ice and gas can be trapped into a planet, a gas giant planet will form, but inside the ice line, rocks can't grow very quickly, so all the gas has disappeared before planets become big enough to keep hold of it through their own gravity, so we end up with rocky planets like Earth. We think that most stars have planetary systems like this. There's a final factor we haven't considered, planetary migration. These newly formed systems are unstable. Forming planets interact with each other, and with the protoplanetary disk, through the gravity, and how they accrete material. And this can mean that planets move around, or swap places. We think this is how hot Jupiter planets form, either by migrating inwards through the disk of the protostar, or being gravitationally scattered into very small orbits through interactions with other planets. Planets can also be eaten by their star if they stray too close, or they can be ejected from the star system entirely, it's these processes that I've been studying for the last three years. We don't know how many ejected planets there are out there, but there could be as many of these free-floating planets as there are stars. We know have a handful of these planets already, and I'm hopeful
8: that we'll be able to find some new planets using this method very soon. Since we're on the subject of planets, we've got a question about the moon. Luxia asks, where did the moon come from? Well, I figured that we could talk about moons as well, since we're discussing how planets form.
3: Our moon's quite unusual. Most of the moons in the solar system are around giant planets, and typically these form like mini-solar systems, with the same kind of cloud of gas and dust condensing around the giant planets as it condenses around a protostar. If you look at moons like the Galilean satellites of Jupiter, or most of the moons of Saturn, this is how they were formed. Many other moons in the solar system are captured asteroids or Kuiper Belt objects. If you look, for example, at Neptune's moon Triton, or Saturn's moon Phoebe, or Mars' moons, this is where we think they came from. But the thing about all these moons is that they're quite small compared to the planet that they orbit. The moon, our moon, is quite big. It's about the diameter of North America, and it's about an 80th of the Earth's mass. The only other large body that we know of in the solar system with a similarly large moon is Pluto. And just like Pluto and Charon can be thought of as a binary dwarf planet, the Earth and our moon can be thought of as a binary planet too. So how did the Earth get an exceptionally large moon? If we look at material that's been brought back by the Apollo astronauts, we see that, rather than being made of green cheese, the Moon's actually made of very similar material to the outer layers of the Earth. And in particular, if we look at the oxygen and titanium isotope ratios, they're so identical to the Earth's that the Moon and the Earth must have formed from exactly the same material. The best hypothesis we can come up with to explain this is a major collision towards the end of the planet-building process. So long after the dust grains had coalesced and the pebbles, and the pebbles stuck together to form boulders, and the boulders collided to form planetesimals, the planetesimals collided together to form larger and larger planetesimals. Now, once planetesimals get to a few tens of kilometers across, they can't lose heat efficiently. And In the early solar system, there was a lot of radioactive aluminium around, and its radioactive decay heated up the cores of the planetesimals, making them molten. This made collisions between planetesimals a little bit more... splashy. And what we think happened in the Moon's case is that the Earth, which is almost as big as it is now, was hit by a body about the size of Mars. We think it's a fairly glancing blow that knocked some big chunks of the early Earth out into space. And eventually those chunks settled into orbit around the Earth and coalesced back into a single body, which is what we see as the Moon today. This all happened within the first few million years after the Sun started burning hydrogen and at the time, the moon would have been a lot closer to Earth than it is today. Both the Earth and the moon would have been completely molten, heated up by meteorite impacts, gravitational contraction, and radioactive aluminium. But slowly, crusts began to form over both bodies, and the lava centred around volcanic hot spots. Since the moon is smaller and doesn't have an insulating atmosphere, it cooled a lot quicker, and it's now a semi-solid body. But the Earth, being bigger, retained its heat a lot better, and it still has plate tectonics and volcanic activity today. So the Moon acts as an archive for understanding the early solar system and the processes that went on in forming the early Earth. That early geological record's been erased on Earth. Our rocks just simply aren't that old. So we need to go to the Moon and other minor bodies in order to understand these formation processes. Now, the formation of the Moon required the situation that was just right at the end of the planet building in our solar system. The Moon regulates our tides and it keeps the Earth's rotation axis stable, And these factors may have been vital components in bringing together life on Earth. While we have at least one good candidate, we don't have any confirmed moons around planets outside our solar system. So we don't know how common the formation of large moons around terrestrial planets is. But understanding this process could be an important point in understanding how many other planets in our galaxy could support life.
8: Lastly, Alex S. asks, how many planets are there in the universe? Well, these days there seems to be a new planet
3: discovered every other day. That's actually statistical average. We know of over 4,000 of them in total. So it might come as quite a surprise to know that we still don't have a good idea of how many of them there are out there. Now, there's a lot of reasons for this. One of them is that it's easy to detect big planets and planets near their star. It's hard to detect small planets or planets a long way from their star. So we have a good idea of the number of Jupiter-sized planets around the average star. We've got a reasonable idea of the number of Neptune-sized planets around the average star, but we still don't have a good idea of how many rocky planets there are. Now, Ongoing missions like TESS and upcoming missions like Plato will help detect small planets close to their stars, but it's still going to be really difficult to detect planets a long way from their stars. For that, we need the patience to sit and watch millions of stars for several years until we can make repeated detections of a few rocky planets. So far, however, we might guess that the average sun like star has maybe three planets or so, but we don't know how accurate that guess is. The average number of planets probably also depends on the kind of star you're looking at. Massive stars, stars bigger than the Sun, tend to have more planets, and smaller stars have fewer. But it's very difficult to detect planets around stars more than about one to half times the mass of the Sun, because they don't have sharp spectral lines with which we can measure the wobble of the star as the planet orbits it. It's also very difficult to detect planets around very small stars, because they don't produce very much light from which we can make our measurements. On top of this, older stars and stars at the edges of galaxies probably don't have enough dust-forming metals to nucleate large planetary cores, so they probably have fewer planets too. So we don't know how many planets a typical star has if you average it over the entire galaxy. However, we can say that the Sun's a fairly typical star, so let's just guess that we have about three planets per star. Using this very rough guess, we can multiply by the number of stars to get an idea of the number of planets in the universe. We know that there are about 400 billion stars in our galaxy, so that means we can expect roughly 1.2 trillion planets. We also know that there are about 100 billion galaxies in the observable universe, so we might expect something like a hundred sextillion planets out in the universe. And that's only the part of the universe we can see. There's probably a whole lot more universe out there that we can't we were also asked by another Blue Dot attendee how many Earth-like planets there are in the universe. Now, obviously, that depends on what you mean by Earth-like. If we say Earth-like is a planet about the size of ours, in an orbit like ours, where the temperature is just about right for liquid water on the surface, then most stars probably have at least one planet that meets these criteria. So there might be hundreds of billions of Earth-like planets in our galaxy, and tens of sextillions of Earth-like planets in the wider universe. But that definition includes planets like Venus where the greenhouse effects baked the water out of the planet, and Mars, which didn't have the right combination of mass and density and magnetic field to keep hold of its water. So planets with oceans like ours might be much rarer, and there might only be tens of billions of ocean-bearing worlds in our galaxy. Of course, by Earth-like, you could mean a planet with life. We don't know enough about astrobiology to predict how often the conditions for life occur, but even if the probability that a planet with an ocean forms life is a billion to one against... The galaxy should still have a good selection of alien life out there, and the wider universe could have a lot more. So statistically, it seems unlikely that we're alone. However, what we've found from science is that the reality is a lot stranger than fiction. There will be a lot of planets out there that we simply haven't even thought possible. Things that will surprise us and things we didn't expect. Planets like hot Jupiters rocked the astronomical community when they were first discovered, and we can expect similar discoveries in the future. The first alien life we find, if we do is almost certain to be something completely different to our expectations. But one thing is clear for now.
8: There's plenty plants for us to go looking at. All right, thanks a lot for that, Ian. Back to the studio.
9: Thanks for that, Ian, and Ian MacDonald. And now on to the feedback.
8: So there's a tweet this month from Full m 44 on Twitter uh, who put up a picture of a Jodcast live recording from all the way back in 2009 including Chris Lintott among others, so that's a bit before our time, but it's really great seeing the people whose legacy we're continuing so thanks a lot for that, Uh, and also to Chris Lintott himself, who said that it was such a good day and that watching the Jodcast regulars meeting their Arden fans was just lovely and if you want to get in touch, then you can do so via the website at www.jodcast.net.
2: You can use Twitter at twitter.com slash Jodcast.
9: Facebook at facebook.com slash Jodcast.
8: You can go to YouTube at youtube.com slash Jodcast.
2: Or Flickr at flickr.com slash group slash Jodcast.
9: And don't forget that you can send us post. The address is on the website.
8: Thanks to Simon Johnson and Laura Dreesen for the interviews. The editors were Tian, me, Ben Shaw and Lizzie Lee. The producer was Michael Wright. Until next time, Jod
2: That wasn't quite what I was expecting,
5: but still entertaining.
1: I always like listening to that night sky man. He's ever so calming.
5: I'm just glad it wasn't one of those ranty
0: episodes. What's up with that guy anyway? A few days later, our protagonist meets with their supervisor for their last weekly meeting before the holidays.
8: So, how has the literature review been going? It's okay, yeah.
2: I have a full set of targets now. Things are good. Things were not good. What's this? Oh, that source. That's the one you sent on to me earlier in the week.
8: Something is wrong here. Very wrong indeed. You mean you didn't send on that data? I did not. Uh, More than that, I've never heard of this source. If I didn't know any better, I'd say someone conjured it up out of whole cloth. Is that an accusation? No, no, not at all. But I'd be lying if I said it wasn't irregular... I need you to track down where this thing came from as soon as you can. Uh,
5: today? Today. All right, all. Hey, hey, hey strong. strong. Is everything okay? You look like Christmas
2: has been cancelled. My supervisor is worried that one of the sources we got is a fake. If it is, I need to prove it and fast.
4: If there was ever a time for a spot of flaring magic, I think this is it. Time for me to save the day with my trusty magic wand. I'll find the truth of theirs far play... uh, To infinity and beyond! Uh,
5: Nothing's happening. Is this one of those narrative things again? She does like some narrative. It's not
4: that. I'm just having some technical difficulties.
7: Thank you for purchasing a Divine Electronics product. An important OS update is currently in progress. The Estimated time to completion is... 140 hours.
2: Oh. But we don't have 140 hours to save the day. I am meant to be heading back home tomorrow. There's got to be another option.
7: If you would like to speak to one of our representatives, please...
4: Oh, I give up with this thing.
5: Is there an opposite to deus ex machina? Because I think this would qualify.
4: I'm going to go get
2: in touch with student services. I'm running out of options at this point.
4: I
1: suddenly don't know what to do. It was all going so swimmingly. If it wasn't the supervisor in the office with the data packet, then who was it?
6: It's behind you. Ah!
1: Quick, get behind this conveniently placed filing cabinet. I get the impression you've got something to do with
4: this. Out with it. Who are you?
6: Every coin has two sides to it. If you are the flairy godmother, then I am the Gaia godfather.
4: Well, look at you with your big fancy title. You're going to make me an offer I can't refuse?
6: As it so happens, yes. These are my terms. Stand down and stop intervening in this tale, and I, in return, will not lock you back into that disc. Wait, you're the one who trapped us? The very same. We got done by that pound shop edgelord? Shh, we are messing <coughs> out on exposition. But then you escaped, and with the help of that charming new friend of yours, I couldn't just sit back and let them take the plaudits. I sat and thought a bit and then came up with a fiendish plot to sink your (laughs) precious script. Now it's come to pass, you see. My scheme is now complete. Your magic cannot save you now. I've fixed you up a treat.
4: (laughs) Enough with the rhymes. That's my thing.
6: Oh, imposing a monopoly now, are we? I'm afraid you've got competition.
4: So, you're challenging me to a rap battle. You think you can step to this? Easily. Your rhymes are weak. The heck did you just say to me? I will spit some skits the samurai at you right now.
6: Oh, no you won't.
4: Oh, yes I will.
6: No, no, you really won't. We'll get copyright struck.
4: Oh, right.
6: Not enough of this idle banter. My work here is done. I would feel guilty about it, but hurt feelings don't get you an impact factor. And if you see that student, you tell them to stay out of my way. What a thoroughly unpleasant
5: character.
1: You can say that again.
5: What a thoroughly unpleasant character. All right, all. Ayo, Pankstrom.
2: You really have to do that every time someone else walks in. Yeah, that's my bit. Uh, If you say so. Anyway, student services said they'll do what they can.
5: Any luck with the wand?
4: Uh, Not yet, but we did get uh, acquainted with one of the faculty.
5: They didn't quite come out and say it to our faces, but they're obviously the one behind all this. A jealous type, and then some.
1: And apparently, they shot us into those disks.
2: So, what do we do? Well, something has to be done. Otherwise that horrible researcher will get tenure and supervisory responsibilities. And then it'll be basically impossible to get rid of them. Who knows how many early careers could end up wrecked if we just give up and do nothing. You're right. They have to be
1: stopped. But with what evidence? At the moment, it's just our word against theirs, and there's no paper trail. What about a digital
7: trail? Your call is very important to us. Please stay on the line.
0: And so, as the last night fell, our hero's watch began.
2: Are you two actually going to help out here?
5: We are. We're gathering data on the suspect right now. You're scrolling through their photos on Facebook. So, that still counts as data.
1: It's an excellent data set, if you ask me. Ooh, the lighting really works in this one. What do you think? And then we've got all of these posts on a page called Rambunctious Redback Memes.
2: Okay. You're getting a little too invested in this.
1: Hang on, we've actually got something here. A picture from last night. Looks like they're in an office.
5: And it's captioned, Late night here, no rest for the wicked. With seven fire emojis, seven... Uh, that can't be a coincidence.
1: It puts them in the right place at the right time.
2: But it's still not conclusive.
1: No. For this, I think we need a specialist.
4: I'm in. That
5: voice is cheap. But it's my only line. What an eccentric performance. Where did you even find a hacker?
4: I'll have to explain later. He has to go now. He's on a very specific 24-hour work contract. It's a rough schedule, but it pays well, by all accounts.
5: So, what did this associate of yours turn up? You're going to want to see this.
2: (gasps) For someone beating themselves up as a mastermind, their internet security etiquette is frighteningly poor. I suppose they were too high and mighty for two-factor authentication. To be fair, that is a right pain in the... No, no We all know.
1: More importantly, those fake sources still sat in their sent items box. You know, it said there are two kinds
4: of people in hell. Those that got caught, and those that kept notes. You have to be something pretty special to get done on both of those charges.
5: Or be arrogant to the point of narcissism.
4: I guess that works too. So we have witness accounts?
5: I couldn't forget that nasty piece of work, even if I wanted to. And you have screenshots of
4: everything? Already done. Then the villains in our sights team, in just a little bit, we can expose this wicked scheme and land them in
1: deep... No!
0: No!
8: The next day... Oh, what a warning. It's not every day a researcher gets hauled before an investigative panel, and on falsification of results, no less. You think there'll be repercussions for them? I'm told the evidence was overwhelming. No one is quite sure how it ended up on the desks of the panelists, but that's not my division. But what is clear is that you are innocent in all of this.
2: Uh, I'm glad to hear it.
8: As am I. But with the fake exposed, that means you're still one star short of your literature review, no? Actually,
2: no. You remember those filing cabinets with the dodgy bottom drawer? I do. Turns out they're loaded with old photographic plates. There's at least one dwarf nova in the
8: fields. Excellent. I'd be excited to see what else they turn up. Goes to show you never quite know what's hidden in those those old drawers. (laughs) No... You really don't. I'm glad this all worked out. Otherwise, you could have been condemned to eventually leave the department for the lands of data science and steady employment, sentenced to live a life free of endless grant applications.
2: That sounds pretty decent, actually. In terms like that, why would people choose to stay in academia?
8: Sometimes I ask myself the same question. But that's another challenge for another day. Gotta catch that trend.
0: Thanks for listening to us, but now our story ends. We hope you liked hunting for stars with godmother and friends. Touch and go it may have been, but the record's been put right. From the Jodcast, a Merry Christmas, and to all, a good night.
8: Thank you all very much for listening to the Jodcast this year. It's been a great honour to be able to do this. The cast for Snow White and the Seven Dwarf Novi are as follows. The narrator was Crispin Agar. Our protagonist
2: was Michael Wright.
8: The protagonist's friends were played by Ashwarya, Selvaraj and Hong Ming Tang. The Flairy Godmother
2: was played by Fiona Porter. David Alt was played by himself. The Wicked Postdoc was played by Ian MacDonald.
8: Gaia was Emma Alexander.
2: Angstrom, our comedy sidekick, was played by Micah Bowles. Dame Cynthia
8: Cataclysmic was Shruti Badale. The Supervisor was Tian Bazidna. And Hack Bauer was Jake Staberg Morgan. Thank you all very much and have a good night. <laughs>